This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we discuss the parable of the vineyard, a generous God, and the interactions that follow as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem. That's right. We start with one of my favorite parables. They're all good. We would hope they're all good. They're all Jesus' parables. But of the parables that I have studied, one of my personal favorites is the parable of the workers and the vineyard. So let's just dive right in. All right, Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. All right. I'm going to stop you right there before we finish the parable. Because uh, it's a good spot just to reflect on a couple things. Story ends. Well, we we should review here. The story has a landowner. And this landowner hires different groups of people throughout the day. Heads into town. This group of people standing there looking for work. He keeps hiring people throughout the day. Some of them are hired early, work all day, while others are hired halfway, work half of the day. Others are hired even later and barely even uh, have gotten to work at all, barely even started by the time the work day ends. And when it comes time to pay the workers at the end of the day, because that's how it worked at that, Torah said you have to pay a worker at the end of every single day, get paid for your day's work. So when it comes time to pay them at the end of the day, he starts with the um, ones that have worked the least first. Um, so I have some notes just written down here. Even though we know how the story ends, don't race past the immediate assumptions we make about the story. They are worth wrestling with. Ask more questions about the story. For instance, why would the owner start with the ones who worked the least? I mean, if he... The story's going to end with everybody getting upset. If he would have started with the ones that worked the most, Brent, what do you think? They'd be gone. They wouldn't even realize. Yeah, they'd get your paycheck. They'd be out of there. He could have just avoided this. whole. Isn't isn't the God character in the story smart enough to know? So why is it that God starts? He could have avoided this entire mess. Why do it the way that he does it? And I like to stop here and just go, no, really? Like, really wrestle with that. Pause for just a moment and go, wait a minute. Why would God purposely pay the least first in front of everybody else, there must be something to, like almost almost like God is wanting to show something. Like the God character here almost wants it to be seen. Interesting. So go ahead and finish the parable. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. All right, let's do our Pardes exercise here, Brent. There's a lot of just Peshat conclusions. I have four written down in front of me. Four 
just, and really good ones too, by the way. It's one of my favorite parables. Did I say that already? Um, four really good Peshat conclusions here. Number one, God loves to be generous and he loves to give to people who don't deserve it. Like he just loves that. Like that is this generous God. That is just what he loves. It's like a pastime. It's a hobby. He loves to give to people that don't deserve it and he loves to be generous. It makes him feel great. It's just one of the things he loves to do. Uh, second Peshat conclusion. God apparently wants us to have to wrestle with this and let it transform our selfishness by inviting us to join him in celebrating his generosity rather than getting angry. Why would he do it the way that he did it? Why would he pay the last first and make us all watch it? Us, listen to me use my pronouns. How dare I say which group I'm in? But why, why would he do that? Why would he take the religious, the ones that have been there the whole time, the ones that know and make them watch this? Because he wants us to see it. He wants us to be provoked by it. He wants us to see his character, to see his generosity, and he wants us to be transformed by it. Um, Another Peshat conclusion, the kingdom of heaven isn't fair. It's incredibly benevolent and generous. The kingdom of God is not fair. Like a lot of us have this American concept of, well, well, heaven, the kingdom of heaven, God is fair. No, God is not fair. God is horribly unfair in a beautiful, beautifully generous and benevolent way. That is the nature of of, I once heard somebody preach on um, what heaven might be like, and they said, uh, some of these parables are trying to teach us like what heaven is like and what God is like, who God is, so that potentially when we get there, like it will actually be heaven for us. I think there was a British theologian that once said, the flames of heaven, talk about the flames of heaven. Like you get to heaven and the heaven is not really heaven. Heaven is more like hell to you because you don't actually like what heaven is. Like you don't want, you don't want unadulterated generosity. You don't want benevolence. You want, you worked hard. You're the elder brother in that prodigal son story. You are like you, and heaven isn't heaven for you. And the invitation here could be that God wants us to be transformed in such a way that we understand that heaven isn't fair and we love it. Like imagine yourself being in heaven. You've worked hard, you get in, Peter escorts you in, you get your seat, and then somebody, whatever whatever group, you know, whatever those people are for you, whatever people group that is, the people that didn't figure it all out, the people that didn't do it right, the people that came in deathbed confessions, like, I, I don't care what it was, deathbed conversions, what I meant to say, whoever they are, imagine them like getting ushered in, getting the same reward, sitting in a better seat than you got. Jesus is inviting us to be the kind of people where our heart is going to go, oh, yes, not, hey, that's not fair. Like, that is the transformation that's being invited here. Um, last push out conclusion I have. It is and will be this way for people who we think don't deserve it. It is this way for people who we think don't deserve it. So all of those people, whoever those people were that you just thought of in that mental exercise, God loves to be generous. God loves to be benevolent. God loves to take the same grace, love, forgiveness, acceptance that he showers on you in your life, and he loves to give it in abundance to people who literally don't deserve it like you do. Like, he just loves that. He just loves it. Um, But there's one more Peshat piece that is um, relevant. We have in some Jewish literature um, a phrase, a phrase. it's not used a lot, and, and if we can, we can take this phrase and over, we can abuse it. But there is a phrase in rabbinic literature that talks about bearing the burden in the heat of the day. 
And in Jesus's day, it was a phrase that was used commonly to talk about the Jews' relationship with the Gentile. I remember being with Ray once on a trip, and uh, he was talking about the fact that Jews, for 2,000 years before Jesus, had carried the weight of Torah so that the world could know who God was. They had eaten kosher. They had had kosher clothing. They had observed cleanliness laws. They had, and he went down this list of what it meant to be Torah observant, and he said they did that for you and for me, as Gentiles, Ray said. Um, they, they carried that weight. They carried that burden so that we could have a clear understanding of who God is and what he is like. And in the rabbinic period, they had a similar kind of statement. We have borne the burden. Now, they don't typically, the reason why that phrase is tricky is they don't typically talk about the law as a burden. Um, Jews don't see the law as a burden. But there is a phrase that we have encountered a couple times in history where they talk about bearing the burden in the heat of the day, the heat of the day. And that is always used in reference to we Jews are carrying this extra weight The story, funny story that always gets told, and it gets spun about 10 different ways. The funny story that gets told is uh, God came looking for a people to partner with. And he came uh, to the Greeks. He said, will you partner with me? And they said, well, what does this partnership look like? Look like, and he said, "Well, you gotta eat kosher. No, no more pork. Uh, you gotta wear non-blended fabric. Um, there's some cleanliness laws. There's actually 613 commandments." And the Greeks were like, "Are you kidding me? No way!" And then God came to the Americans, and He said, "Hey, will you carry my?" And we said, ha, "We bow the knee to nobody." Hashtag America. And then God came. I'm adapting the story for my own audience. And then God came to the Jews, and He said, "Will you be my people?" And the the funny version of the rabbinical story uh, says the Jews looked at God and said, how much is it? And God said, it's free. And they said, we'll take two. <laughs> and so there is this, um, there is this, we have, we have carried this weight on behalf of the world so that the world can know what God is like. So realize that when Jesus tells this parable, he very intentionally drops that phrase in there. And it makes, it makes this parable very deliberately about Jew and Gentile. This isn't just about deathbed conversions. It's not just about people that worked at 9 a.m. and then noon and then 3 p.m. and then 5 p.m. The 5 p.m. workers are quite literally Gentiles, like fresh off the boat, Greco-Roman people wanting to worship the God of Israel, which we're going to look a lot at in session four. So that discussion is coming But that's what this parable, this parable is spoken in a Jewish setting by a Jewish rabbi to a Jewish audience. And essentially, Jesus is still on this Gentile kick we've encountered for the last few chapters, where Jesus is saying, hey, this whole thing's about the Gentiles, and you don't want it to be, but God cannot wait to shower the same benevolence, blessing, and generosity on them that he showers on the Jewish people. So Jesus has the nerve to suggest the Gentiles might get the same blessing from God just because he loves to be generous. And all this was which level, Brent? Oh, Peshat level, yeah. This is all Peshat level. So we got to find the... We have to find the remez. We have to find the remez, right? So um, there's a couple options. Now, when I say heat of the day, what is the first story you think of, Brent? Hmm. Because there's a story first mentioned is beautiful here. If the context of this parable is about Jew and Gentile, Somebody was sitting under a tree in the heat of the day. Oh, Jonah. Nope. But that's another great remez okay. that some say is at play here. Okay. Goes way, way further back to that. Think Genesis. Uh, 
Somebody Abraham sitting, was. Abraham yeah. sitting in the shade of a tree, just been circumcised, and the three visitors show up. Now consider the implication if that is a remez here. In the heat of the day, the remez there would be, well, what did Abraham do for the visitors? He showed what, Brent? Radical hospitality. Radical hospitality. So guys, it's almost like Jesus is saying, this is why the ones who showed up last got paid first. Because I'm trying to tell you that we have to be radically generous because that's what Abraham, that's the call of Abraham to bless all nations. And if we go all the way back to be the beginning, we have to understand that we have always agreed to work for a denarius, so to speak. And the whole reason we were agreed to work for a denarius was so that all the Gentiles could get a denarius. So this is our calling at play. But I think there could even be another remez at play here, and it comes from Isaiah 61. Now, the remez, if, if it is at play, is actually Isaiah 61, verse 5. So give me just 61, 5, Brent, and tell me what that says. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. All right. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. Feels like at least an option that could be at play here. Now, when I say that, what do you think the context of that? If you just have verse 5, Brent, what is the context? Do you think that's a... Do you think this is a chapter of curses? Do you think it's a chapter of blessings coming out of a prophet? He's saying strangers will shepherd your flock. Foreigners will work your vineyards. I mean, it doesn't sound very positive. Right. Typically, I think in the prophets, this would be, I mean, we're going to assume here, this is this has got to be a curse. Isaiah 61, this is going to be what, fourth Isaiah? Yes, absolutely. So that will be in the remnant period? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And the section that we associated in session two with, boy, we're going real back to that part of session two that you always said you were weak in. Yeah. Uh, what we associate the remnant with? Yeah. Or not the remnant, but Isaiah four. What was Isaiah four? It was like theme word. Oh, fourth Isaiah. Yeah. Uh, theme fourth Isaiah. of fourth Isaiah was, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Hope. Hope. Okay. All right. And, the, and well, that okay, would... So- so blessings then. Maybe. So now I'm thinking, I wonder if it's blessings. So now we need to go, like the verse itself makes me think a curse. But fourth Isaiah's theme is hope. So let's go back to Isaiah 61 and start reading this verse in context. It doesn't seem like it could be a blessing. You mean foreigners are going to work my vineyard? What? Okay, go ahead and read. Uh, okay, so starting in verse one, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Sounds like radical hospitality to me. Sounded pretty good so far. And this is Jesus's like staple when Jesus wants to talk about his ministry. Like this is his go-to verse. This is his passage. This is his jam. Okay, go ahead. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks and foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. So there's our verse, right? So at this point, we can now see this is not a curse. This is a blessing. This is Isaiah saying the year of the Lord's favor is going to show up. And when the year of the Lord's favor shows up, everybody's going to be blessed. 
The poor are going to be ministered to. The prisoners are going to be released. The blind are going to see. The lame are going to walk. Everything's going to be in its proper place. And that's why I'm going to find foreigners in my vineyard, because everybody is going to have enough and everybody's going to be involved. But it's not even done yet. So go ahead and keep reading a few more verses. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Who got the double portion, Brent? Uh, The firstborn. The firstborn, the Bechor, right? Going back to session one. Okay, go ahead. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. All right. So, um, the Bechor got a double portion of blessing, but that was because why, Brent? Because there was more responsibility. You had to take care of the family. Right. I wonder if a Bahor would say, like, I have borne the burden of the family in, like, the heat of the day. Sure. Like, I've had to do more work. And and the family would respond, yeah, but you're the Bahor. You also get more blessing. Now, in a sense, Jesus is could be remezzing here in his drosh. Listen, guys, you have to do more work. Of course, we're carrying the burden in the heat of the day, but we get a double portion of blessing. But what I find so beautiful is in Isaiah 61, what is the double portion, Brent? Like just in its immediate context. Uh, the wealth of nations. Well, kind of in, in essence, but the bigger picture, like that's a piece of it. But that whole verse one through seven, I mean, you could you can tra- translate this, that last verse there said, and so you will inherit a double portion of your land and everlasting joy will be yours. You can translate that and thus, like in this manner. So everything that 61 has just talked about, when the blind see, when the lame walk, when foreigners are vin- in your vineyard, that will be your double portion. And again, I think too many of us, including people hearing that parable that day, probably went, well, that sucks. That's not the double portion I want. I don't want that. And again, I think God and Jesus is inviting us in this parable, become the type of people where your heart leaps and rejoices when you get told your double portion is everything in its proper place, everybody being blessed, everybody having enough. That will be our double portion, the kingdom of heaven crashing into. But if we have this like tribal, well, I want to win, hashtag winning, like that's what I want. We're going to be sorely disappointed and heaven is not going to be very heavenful for us. So I guess the idea is more like we get the wealth of nations and we become the conduit that blesses all the other nations. Absolutely. And and being that conduit is the blessing. Right. Absolutely. Yep. And being able to see, not even just be the conduit, but also being able to see what comes out of that process and be able to rejoice in that. Um, that's, that's good stuff. All right. Let's keep moving through the chapter and wrap up this discussion here today. Uh, I feel like I had something that I wanted to touch on. I guess, well, yeah. At some point I went through and I'm like, I was trying to figure out how heaven worked or whatever. (laughs) And I found all these verses that talk about like the reward that you're going to get. And there's all of these, like if you you can find all these individual verses that talk about your reward will be this or that based on this or that. I'm like, okay, so, so what you do is how you get your reward, but it completely ignores longer passages like this that don't speak directly to that. Right. And so how do you get that balance? Like, it's just, right. it's a very different perspective than what I had originally. When you, yeah. when you take, uh, you know, 10 verses out of context <laughs> yeah. and don't really 
right. put in mind the rest of scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of goes back to, I think we kind of wrestled with some of the same things back in the Sermon on the Mount at the very beginning of the session or middle of the session or whatever, because yeah, the reward is different than what we think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, yeah. The reward itself is different. And also like you, you have to, you have to know the whole scriptures and put it together. Sure. You can't just correct pick and choose to get what you want. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yep. All, All right, right. Let's keep moving. What do we got next? Uh, let's see. Verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way and at, and, and sh- we should maybe point out, you're always going up to Jerusalem. So Absolutely. He's he's literally traveling south, right. but he's going up to Jerusalem. Absolutely. And he could even be dropping in elevation. In fact, at certain, at certain points, he absolutely is dropping in elevation. But it's always up because Mount Zion is the highest of all mountains. You say, literally? No, not literally. Spiritually. So, yes. Always so, up. he's coming from the Galilee, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. All right. So I'll just be honest about this little section. Um, I uh, One of the things I've always said, Brent, is I don't believe that Jesus ever looked at things through his which, through his what? What's the phrase I always use? Uh, God goggles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Jesus is looking at things through his God goggles. So when he teaches his disciples about this, the crucifixion part, the death part, I'm totally cool with. Like, he can see that coming as a human being. No issues. Um, Because he knows if he's going to confront the Sadducees, we've already kind of chatted about this at the beginning of the session. We've gone through the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all that kind of stuff. When he goes to confront the Sadducees, he knows he is going to confront a corrupt, mafia, mob-like situation. Absolute power corruption. He knows he's going to die. That's not a newsflash. But the one thing that I do struggle, as I have this position that I've shared, that I don't think Jesus is ever looking through his God goggles, the one piece that I do struggle with, if Jesus actually said it, and a liberal scholar is going to be like, well... Matthew is making him say it, but he didn't really say it. Well, I'm not going to be able to comfortably do that. As I'm okay if that's true, but I'm not going to be able to comfortably teach that. So I'm going to assume here that Jesus said these words. It's the piece about being raised to life after three days that I have a hard time wrestling with. How did Jesus foresee that? Was it revealed to him intimately through time alone with God? Did he understand, and obviously... I don't know who understand his who understood his scriptures better than Jesus. <laughs> so, if it is in the scriptures to be found, if it is in the Old Testament to be exegeted, if you will, if it is to be found there, he absolutely would have found it in the scriptures. I just don't know of the rock solid case that Jews have ever seen that in the Old Testament. So, that's just tricky for me. I don't have an answer. I just bring it up because as we go past it, this is typically a passage I probably would have skipped. But when we do a reverse, I'm going to acknowledge the stuff that I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't know what I'd do with that. But uh, either way, he's telling his disciples, this is where I'm headed. This is what I go to do. And this is the idea that we've talked about a little bit before of Philippians 2. Even though Jesus was God, he, he did not use that to his advantage. He set it aside when he was on the earth. Absolutely. Yep. And that's Good. in the Hebrews uh, reference where he you know, experienced everything we experienced, like all that stuff. Absolutely. I l- he learned obedience. He, he he says, everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you in the gospels. That same writer of Hebrews says he learned obedience. 
So there's a process of discovery on some level. doesn't mean that there was a sinful, like a lot of us learn through our sin and our mistakes. I'm not going to go there, but there is a process of learning. There's a process of illumination. There's a process of discovery that Jesus goes through according to the text. Which fits in perfectly with their culture. Absolutely. No doubt. Moving on, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. This is very strange. Like follow-up to, hey, I'm uh, going to get crucified, and then I'll be back to life. And, oh, hey, can I ask you a favor real quick? <laughs> it is kind of a, yes. And yet it does reveal how they're hearing, and I can somewhat put myself in their shoes. Like, the crucifixion resurrection business is going to make no sense before it happens. Like, there's no way they're going to be able to see what Jesus is talking about. So they keep spinning these words into words of revolution, and so she comes right off of this, like, <laughs> I'm going to go, I go to die and be raised to life again. And she's like, well, if that's what you're going to go do, I got a, I got a little request to make. Can I put a suggestion in the suggestion box? What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. We call that chutzpah. <laughs> Mommy that's, chutzpah. That's some pretty good chutzpah. Yeah, I like that. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. All right, let me pause you right there, because if we were kind to Peter when he said, well, I'm going to get out of the boat and walk on water. We said he did that. Why, Brent? Because he thought he could be just like his rabbi. He could be just like his rabbi. So let's not like, I know, I mean, I don't hear a ton of sermons or lessons on this passage, but when I do, we're quick to throw James and John under the bus, stupid idiots. Like Jesus is like, can you drink the cup? And they're like, yeah. Well, if they're, isn't that the right answer, Brent? If they're Talmudim? Absolutely. Yeah. I if mean, he says, Jesus, by calling them, said that you can be like me. Absolutely. So let's just give them the same props we gave Peter. Like Jesus looks at him and goes, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they say, yeah, we can. We're disciples. You called us. Anything you do, we're going to do. And Jesus says, you're right. You will. <laughs> I mean, these guys are going to die brutal martyr deaths and really, really drink of that same cup. They won't drink it in its entirety as Jesus did. And we'll talk about that cup maybe some other time. Wonderful closing to a Passover experience. But um, they are going to drink of that cup. They'll at least take some sips of that cup that Jesus is going to drink from. But Jesus says, however, that right and left business. Eh. And again, I hear Jesus operating as a man. I'm not operating as God. That's for my father to do. Like I'm just here walking out my calling. And that those seats, that's for God. that's God's business there. So let's just pause and give them some props that they answered that like good Jewish disciples. Go ahead and keep going. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just this upside-down wacky. And of course, you can imagine a group of 12 guys, especially if they're as young as we've suggested. Now, young in our culture, a little bit older, relatively speaking, but still young, young adults trying to find their way, trying to find their identity, jockeying for position. They don't respond well to this whole, hey, can I sit at your right and your left? I'm sure Peter probably had 
um, probably had some reminders he wanted to give James and John when this was done. Like, hey, you forget your place here, but there, there's some wrestling going on here. They're human. And Jesus is like, hey, we can't get into that business. Kingdom doesn't operate that way. Kingdom doesn't, and I, See, right now, like I have to stop myself because what I want to do is I want to race ahead to session four. And I want to take people to Turkey. Because what we got to see, Brent, is that these same guys that can't quit arguing about who's the greatest end up leading this unbelievably rush, like inclusive, revolutionary movement, preaching a gospel that says there is no Jew, there is no Greek. I mean, that's Paul. But these guys went out through Asia and Asia Minor, and they lived it. So they don't get it now in this verse, but they end up getting it, whether that's through the power of the Holy Spirit just a process of learning, a process of maturing, they get it and they change the world with this radical truth. So I'm just moved as I look at the young, immature, untrained disciple, knowing where it is that they're heading. And they're going to die for this. Like they are going to drink of that cup that Jesus just talked about. So just pretty good, pretty good little teaching there. All right, let's finish this chapter out. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. All right, they call him Son of David, by the way, which is an indication that they, which I I don't think I've realized until more recently, I don't think I've caught how cool that is. Like, yes, it's a theological statement, but if you remember, and I think there, oh, here's a book we can recommend, uh, Brent, Bruce Chilton wrote a book, I believe called Rabbi Jesus is the title. Um, and he's a scholar. It's going to lean probably a little bit more uh, textually critical. Uh, I don't want to use the word liberal, but he's going to lean a little bit left for a lot of people to be comfortable with. But Chilton makes a case that I agree with, and that is that he thinks Jesus would have been seen culturally as a mumser. I think we've already kind of touched on that already earlier in session three. I think Jesus's birth story, this virgin birth story, would have been totally questioned, which is why I think John the Baptist ends up having to be his rabbi, yada, yada, yada. Like we've, we've made all kinds of connections here. But if Chilton's theory is correct, that there is, um, there is a mum, a mamserness, a mumserness, a, um, um, illegitimate stigma surrounding who Jesus is, then a statement from a couple of, a couple of other blind mumsers, Jesus, you are the son of David. That is a statement about the world may see you as a mumser. The world may not respect your pedigree, but we believe in who you are. Like that is a that is a more loaded statement than just, oh, hey, we believe you're descended from David. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're making a bigger statement than that. We're looking through your, um, the way that culture has labeled you. So I, I've just been more and more aware of those statements, especially coming from people with Matthew's agenda of what, Brent? Of the mumser. Of the mumser. It, it just, there's, there is like a, there is a, a recognition there that I, I just really like. All right, go ahead. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. Here we go. I've wondered if there is some... Um, I find it so interesting when Jesus interacts with so many people like this in the Gospels, how he always asks them, what do you want me to do for you? Like, isn't that self-evident? <laughs> 
um, are you really going to be surprised at my request? But he, he engages in this, what is it that you want? Um, which I've done different things with that. I've personally been convicted that I need to stop assuming that I know what everybody else wants and needs. I remember when I worked for four years um, before I had this job in campus ministry, I worked and I, I, I interacted a lot with the homeless. And I remember how often I thought, especially when I got started, oh man, that first year, year and a half, whew, did I learn a lot? Because I went into that thinking I knew what they needed. I knew what they wanted, only to find out I was just totally dead wrong. And what they, what I really needed to do is engage with them in relationship. And I wonder if that's what Jesus is doing here when he meets these people is, what do you want? How, I don't want to just assume that I know what you want, but I've also wondered if there's even more going on there. I've hunted for Remez's like their reaction, uh, we want we want our sight. I've tried to look at stories in the Old Testament about blind. I think of the story of Elisha uh, uh, and the uh, Arameans. Um, just interesting connections, but I haven't found anything that I think is going on there. But anyway, good stuff. Have we talked about why Matthew often includes two of particular characters? That's coming up next. That's next, okay. That is next episode. All right. Well, you got it. <laughs> there's, the a, there's a little teaser for next yeah, week, we I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that does it for this episode. Uh, you can find any details you need at com. Don't forget to sign up for the Bayma Messenger newsletter. Uh, we will send the news to you in real time. Uh, so thanks for joining us on the Bayma podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>